Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for April 2015. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we discuss the articles that caught our eye in the critical care literature last month. So let's start off with paediatric ICU. The THAPCA trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is Therapeutic Hypothermia After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest in Children. This RCT conducted in 38 children's hospitals, compared two different targeted temperature interventions in 295 children aged from 2 days to 18 years. These children remained unconscious after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and that was defined as requiring at least 2 minutes of chest compression and remaining mechanically ventilated. The children were randomised within six hours of arrest to 120 hours or five days of either therapeutic hypothermia or therapeutic normothermia. So therapeutic hypothermia was the pharmacological paralysis and sedation, external cooling blanket with a target core temperature of 33 degrees Celsius for 48 hours and then rewarming over 16 hours to 36.8 degrees Celsius. And then they were maintained at that temperature for 120 hours. So in the therapeutic normothermia group, they got identical care, but they were maintained at 36.8 for the whole 120 hours. So the difference was that the hypothermia group got 48 hours at 33 degrees and then rewarmed over 16 hours. The results? So the baseline characteristics were similar. Median age was two years. It was witnessed by bystander in 39%. Uh, CPR was performed in 66% and the initial rhythm was VFVT in 8%. The median time from return of spontaneous circulation to treatment or hypothermia or normothermia being implemented was 5.8, 5.9 hours. The primary outcome, the VABS 2 score greater than 70 at 12 months, was negative. So it was 20% in the therapeutic hypothermia group versus 12% in the normothermia group with a relative risk of 1.54, 95% confidence intervals of 0.86 to 2.76, p-value of 0.14. Now the mean age-corrected VABS2 score is 100 and the standard deviation is 15, with a higher score being better, so 70, which is what the primary outcome was a cutoff of a VABS score greater than 70. 70 represents the mean minus two standard deviations. So that's a negative primary outcome, but the difference was 20% in the cooled group versus 12% in the normothermia group. It's just that there were very large confidence intervals. Secondary outcomes included 12-month survival, no difference, uh, change in neurobehavioral function or cognitive function, no difference, safety outcomes, no difference. So overall, there was no significant difference in outcomes of children that survived out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and were cooled to 33 compared to 36.8 degrees Celsius. It is important to note 
that a significant difference in outcomes, both VABS2 and survival, may not have been detected due to large confidence intervals and a larger trial may be required to examine this or to observe a different outcome. However, it is a negative trial and it describes no benefit from therapeutic hypothermia in this population. Let's stick with the paediatric flavour and look at a trial that was published online last year but has been published in the Lancet this month and that is the PIMS trial, 140 millimole per litre of sodium versus 77 millimole per litre of sodium in maintenance IV fluid therapy for children in hospital. Should hospitalised children receive hypotonic or isotonic fluid IV? This question has caused great debate with the traditional approach advocating 30 millimole per litre, very hypotonic, offset by more recent recommendations for 75 millimole per litre to prevent hyponatremia and neurological morbidity in hospitalised children due to increased ADH, etc. Despite this, neurological morbidity continues to be reported. This single-centre PICU RCT from the Tertiary Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, the PIMS study, randomised 690 children who needed IV maintenance fluid for six hours or longer to receive either isotonic, which was 140 millimole per litre, or hypotonic, 70 millimole per litre, IV fluid for 72 hours or until IV fluid rate decreased to less than 50% of the standard maintenance rate. They report similar characteristics at baseline except more infants in the sodium-140 group. Fewer sodium-140 patients developed the primary outcome of hyponatremia, which was sodium less than 135 millimoles per litre. The incidence was 4% in the sodium-140 group and 11% in the sodium-77 group, odds ratio 0.3195% confidence intervals 0.16 to 0.61, p-value 0.001. No patients developed symptomatic hyponatremia and the incidence of hyponatremia was similar. There was no difference in primary endpoint in subgroups including critically ill children and there was no difference in the amount of fluid received by patients that reached the primary endpoint compared to those that didn't. Finally, the Kaplan-Meier curves revealed the risk of hyponatremia was highest in the first six hours in both groups, with the sodium-140 group having a very small risk beyond 24 hours, while the risk continued for the sodium-77 group. So overall, this study is the largest RCT of IV isotonic versus hypotonic maintenance fluids in hospitalised children and it shows isotonic IV fluid is associated with a lower risk of hyponatremia with no increased risk of hypernatremia. Okay, let's move away from kids and on to adult cardiac surgery. In the New England Journal of Medicine, we have another red cell storage or age of blood study, and this is effects of red cell storage duration on patients undergoing cardiac surgery. 
So this certainly is a hot topic. We have just had the ABLE study reporting no difference in 90-day mortality in critically ill patients randomised to older versus standard issue blood. Now we have the RECESS trial, a prospective RCT of shorter-term storage, which is less than 10 days, versus longer-term storage, greater than 21 days, in 1,098 adults undergoing complex cardiac surgery. In this study, which is the RECESS trial, they report at baseline the groups were well-matched, the intervention, so the median storage time was 7 days versus 28 days, so they achieved treatment separation, and the median number of units through to day 7 received was 3 for both groups, and all blood was leukodepleted. There was no difference in component therapy between the groups. Okay, the primary outcome. Now this was the mean change in MOD score from the preoperative score to the highest composite score through to day 7, or time of death or discharge. The mean change in MODs was an increase in 8.5 for the short storage lesion group to 8.7 in the long storage lesion group points. And that's 95% confidence intervals for difference of minus 0.6 to 0.3, so not significant. There was no difference in adverse events with the exception of hyperbilirubinemia, which was more common in the long-term group. All-cause mortality at day 28 was 4.4 versus 5.3, and that's not significant. In conclusion, this study does not support the preferential transfusion of red cells with shorter storage periods in adults undergoing complex cardiac surgery. Okay, moving to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we have an ECMO volume study. This is the association of hospital level volume of ECMO cases and mortality, and it's an analysis of the ELSO registry. So this retrospective analysis examines the association between the center ECMO patient volume and outcomes for pediatric and adult services. They looked at 290 centres for the 24-year period from 1989 to 2013 and report the following. There were 56,222 ECMO runs, about 31,000 neonates, 15,000 children and 10,000 adults. Volume was modelled as a continuous variable but also into four a priori categorical groups, less than 6 cases per year per centre, 6 to 14, 15 to 13, and greater than 30. They report, neonatal volumes declined in the 90s then remained stable. Pediatric and adult volumes have grown exponentially due to an increase in volume at high volume centres. The annual ECMO mortality varied widely across ECMO centres and they were generally lower at higher volume centres. When hospital volume was analysed as a continuous variable, the adjusted odds of in-hospital mortality decreased significantly for neonates and adults, but not paediatric ECMO, 
and this relationship remained when it was modelled as VA versus VV or respiratory versus cardiac. When hospital volume was analysed by the four volume categories, the relationship between increased volume and mortality remained, but was not statistically significant for neonatal and paediatric patients. For adults receiving VV ECMO or ECMO for respiratory support, there was no significant relationship between hospital volume and mortality. For adults receiving VA ECMO or ECMO for cardiac support, there was a significant relationship between hospital volume and mortality. So what do we take from this? The volume outcome relationship may be driven by either selective referral or practice makes perfect mechanisms, increased volume through referral by other centres, increases organisational structure and leads to improved process of care. And the authors discuss the idea of expanding capacity at moderate volume centres that are performing well rather than opening new centres. The authors conclude with the following. We would not recommend an absolute volume threshold to maintain a centre. Volume is generally considered a surrogate marker for quality. Therefore, if a centre has low ECMO volume, then we would suggest using a more proximate measure of quality, such as the risk-adjusted survival rate. Food for thought. Okay, let's go to JAMA and a pulmonary embolus IVC filter study. This is the effect of a retrievable inferior vena cava filter plus anticoagulation versus anticoagulation alone on risk of recurrent PE, a randomized clinical trial. This open-label blinded endpoint trial conducted in 17 French centers enrolled 399 patients with severe acute symptomatic PE associated with lower limb DVT to retrievable IVC filter plus anticoagulation versus anticoagulation alone. They report the filter was inserted in 193 of 200 patients and retrieved in 153 of 164 planned patients. The primary outcome of recurrent PE at three months was 3% in the filter group, and they were all fatal, versus 1.5% in the control group, of which two of three were fatal. Relative risk of two, 95% confidence intervals are obviously very wide with such small numbers, 0.51 to 7.89, and that's not significant. Results were similar at six months, and there was no difference in secondary outcomes. So, this study does not support the use of IVC filters to reduce recurrent symptomatic PE in patients with severe acute PE who are anticoagulated. Okay, back to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. We've got a host pathogen paper, and this is cardiotoxicity during invasive pneumococcal disease. So this paper discusses the host pathogen interactions that contribute to cardiac dysfunction during invasive pneumococcal disease. And it covers, firstly, community-acquired pneumonia is common, and elderly patients hospitalised with community-acquired pneumonia have an increased mortality in the subsequent year, with cardiac events a major contributing factor. 
the cumulative rates of new or worsening heart failure during hospitalisation of adults for community-acquired pneumonia have been reported to be as high as 33%, with arrhythmias 11% and acute coronary syndromes 11%. Strep pneumoniae has been associated directly with adverse cardiovascular events with an increased risk of death. So the possible pathogen-specific mechanisms for strep pneumoniae-specific cardiac toxicity include pneumococcal cell wall-induced cardiomyocyte depression through platelet activating factor, pneumococcal invasion into myocardium through a process of endothelial adhesion, then uptake and translocation into cells, Microlesions are formed that are distinct from Staph aureus in that there is a stark absence of immune cells. They then go on to form a collagen scar lesion which heals. And again, this is a platelet activating factor receptor dependent process. Strep pneumonia produces pneumolysin, which is capable of inducing lysis in target cells, allowing unregulated calcium entry and small molecule, e.g., ATP loss. Pneumococcus also produces H2O2, likely exposing cardiomyocytes adjacent to microlesions to high levels of this reactive oxygen species and causing cell membrane damage. And this leads to cardiomyocyte hypertrophy, stress fibers, disrupted myofibrils, and induced cellular senescence. Uh, so they then raise possible therapeutic and prophylactic approaches to prevent this damage, including statins uh, and novel agents, CBPA, pneumolysin, toxoid fusion protein. So this is an interesting area, interesting pathology, and we may see interventions directed at it in the future. Again, in the American Journal of Respiratory and critical care medicine, we have an equipment paper. So this is a randomized intubation with polyurethane or conical cuffs to prevent pneumonia in ventilated patients. So this multi-center, prospective, open-label, parallel group, RCT, tests the tracheal colonization and VAP rates in patients with respiratory failure with polyurethane versus polyvinyl chloride and or conical versus cylindrical ETT cuffs. Patients were randomized by cluster of 9 or 10 to 1 of the four cuffs and eligible if they were intubated in ICU and within 24 hours of intubation. Airway manage and VAP prevention were protocolized. So they report that the four parallel groups in four ICUs with 621 patients expected to be ventilated for greater than 48 hours were enrolled and 604 were included in the final ITT analysis. The primary outcome of cumulative tracheal colonization of 10 colony forming units per mil at day two was cylindrical PVC tube 0.66, cylindrical polyurethane tube 0.61, conical PVC 0.67, conical PU 0.62. So there was no significance, p value of 
VAP developed in 14.4% of patients and post-extubation strider in 6.4% and there was no difference between groups. So, overall, the use of polyurethane and or conical cuffs were not superior to conventional, that is polyurethane and or cylindrical cuffs, in preventing tracheal colonization or VAP. So let's finish off with a theme that emerged in the last month, which was looking at long-term outcomes in critically ill patients. So firstly, in the JAMA internal medicine, we have functional trajectories among older persons before and after critical illness. So as the population ages, the number of older persons in ICUs is rising, more than half of all ICU days are incurred by patients 65 years or older, and ICU survivors experience significant long-term morbidity. Understanding the trajectory of functional recovery after critical illness is clearly important and increasingly studied. Pre-critical illness functional status is a crucial piece of this puzzle, yet until now it has been either assessed retrospectively by patients or by proxies. Both are subjective and have flaws. The Precipitating Events Project, a Yale longitudinal study of 754 community-based non-disabled people greater than 70 years of age, followed participants monthly for almost 15 years, assessing disability and function each time. This study looks at the cohort of 291 patients within this Yale study admitted to an ICU during the study period and describes functional trajectory and factors that influence it. They use trajectory modelling with three functional trajectories from previous clinical and statistical criteria. They first estimate each participant's probability of membership in multiple trajectories, then assign the participant to the trajectory with it the highest probability. The next step was to repeat the post-ICU functional trajectory modelling with adjustment for multiple covariates and using bootstrap samples to calculate the probability of membership in each post-ICU functional trajectory. Short and long-term mortality as secondary outcomes. The results. The 291 ICU patients were old, 83.7 years, 58% female and 89% white. At the start of the pre-ICU functional trajectory, the mean number of disabilities was 3.8, and there were three clear trajectories, minimal disability, mild to moderate, and severe. For mild to moderate and severe, the severity of disability increased prior to critical illness. 24.1% of all patients died within 30 days of critical illness and the probability of transitioning between these trajectories in the setting of critical illness was described. So 25% of patients with minimal pre-ICU disability became severely disabled or died after ICU. 66% of mild to moderate pre-ICU disability became severely disabled or died after ICU and 34% of the severe disability group pre-ICU died after ICU and the rest remained severely disabled. 
So 53.4% of the overall cohort experienced functional decline or early death after critical illness. The factors independently associated with short-term and long-term mortality after critical illness, including ICU variables, clinical geriatric variables, and pre-ICU functional trajectories were described. So 30-day mortality overall was 21% and increased with worsening pre-ICU functional trajectory. The factors significantly associated with 30-day mortality were mechanical ventilation, cognitive impairment, but not pre-ICU functional trajectory. And one-year mortality was 43% and increased with worsening severity of the pre-ICU functional trajectory. So in summary, this unique study tells us that in older patients there are clear pre-ICU and post-ICU functional trajectories. That critical illness is associated with a decline leading to worse function or early death and that the worse your pre-ICU functional trajectory is, the worse your outcomes and risk of death at one year are. This is not surprising and highlights areas for further work to better understand the pre-ICU status of patients, to research therapies and interventions for older, more disabled survivors of critical illness, and to provide clearer advice for advanced care planning in patients with different degrees of pre-ICU disability. So there were some other descriptive studies published in the last month and in critical care medicine, we have the frequency, cost, and risk factors of readmission among severe sepsis survivors. Hospital readmissions are common and have important impacts on families and society. Overall, 20% of US Medicare patients are readmitted within 30 days of discharge and 34% within 90 days, an annual health burden estimated to cost at least US $17 billion per annum. The 30-day readmission rate has been identified as a marker of substandard care during the index admission or inadequate post-discharge process, the implication being that this is to some degree avoidable. So what about survivors of severe sepsis? So this retrospective cohort study of adult patients hospitalized with severe sepsis in non-federal hospitals in California, Florida and New York for the first half of 2011 used state health care cost and utilization project, which is HCUP, state inpatient databases, SID, to report on 85,000 patients coded for severe sepsis and septic shock. Now, 43,400 were index admissions that met criteria for the severe sepsis survivor cohort. 26% were readmitted within 30 days of discharge, and 4% died during that readmission. 48% were readmitted within 6 months of discharge, 8% died during readmission. The mean cost of each readmission, $25,000. Estimated total cost, $1.1 billion. Sepsis was the most common cause of readmission, 22%, although there was insufficient detail to determine if this was new or unresolved from the index sepsis. Multivariate logistic regression identified associations between patient and hospital characteristics and 30-day readmission, 
So the chance of increased readmission was associated with an age of less than 80 years, male, black race, Medicare or Medicaid as the primary payor, malignancy, collagen vascular disease, chronic renal failure, chronic liver disease, heart failure and diabetes. Also, hospital length of stay greater than the median for the survivor cohort, and the median for the survivor cohort was 10 days, was associated with a 50% greater risk of readmission. And discharge destination to care facility, a 48% greater risk of readmission compared to discharge home. Increase in annual hospital sepsis case volume tertile and increased hospital sepsis mortality rates were associated with increased readmission. So that was a surprise that increased sepsis volume equaled increased readmission. Of the 43,500 survivors, 22.7% were readmitted once, while a quarter were readmitted two or more times. So in summary, this large retrospective cohort study tells us that in the US, sepsis survivors have a large burden of readmission, almost half of all survivors in the first six months after discharge. A small group account for the majority of readmissions. There are characteristics of patients, male, black, younger, Medicare or Medicaid, comorbidities, longer length of stay, higher volume institutions and discharge to care facility that make readmission more likely. Now this is limited by retrospective design and limit the detail available in the database linkage. However, it, it identifies a large, possibly unmet health burden for future efforts to focus on. We've got another study in critical care medicine that looks at survivors of septic shock and this is called hospital-based acute care use in survivors of septic shock. So this retrospective cohort study looks at healthcare use in survivors of severe sepsis with the premise that emergency department presentation or hospital readmission may reflect the quality and coordination of care during the index admission. The authors retrospectively analyzed data from survivors of septic shock admitted from ED who had a lactate greater than 4 or refractory hypertension and report that a total of 1,000 patients with index severe sepsis were identified during the study interval, 414 were admitted from ED, and of these, 23.2% died in hospital, 8.7% were discharged to hospice and excluded. This left 269 sepsis survivors in the study eligible for re-presentation to the hospital. So the co-primary outcome was 30-day ED presentation, of which 4.5% re-presented. The other co-primary outcome was hospital readmission, and that was 23.4% at 30-day. The median time from hospital discharge to ED presentation was 8 days, with admission rate of 75% for those who presented. The median time to hospital readmission was 7 days, uh, and the median readmission length of stay was 5 days. 31% received ICU care, 10% hospital mortality. The reason for readmission potentially related to the index septic shock in 78% and the most common cause was infection, 46%. 
compared with septic shock survivors not readmitted, readmitted patients were more likely to be to have been hospitalised in the previous 30 days, have cirrhosis, cancer, higher Apache 2s, longer hospital length of stay. The multivariate models revealed that cancer, uh, being within 30 days of hospital dis, uh, admission and length of stay were independent risk factors. So in summary, Approximately a quarter of sepsis survivors were admitted within 30 days and three quarters of these admissions occurred within 15 days. Approximately one in six of these readmissions resulted in death or transfer to a hospice. So again, there is a high burden of readmission after critical illness for severe sepsis and this is a vulnerable group of patients with needs that look like they may not be met. So what are we doing about it? Well. We've got the Recover randomized clinical trial published in JAMA Internal Medicine this month. And this is the increased hospital-based physical rehab and information provision after intensive care unit discharge. So the improvements in critical illness mortality witnessed over the last two decades is a good news story. However, we have this new challenge, this population with a burden of disease that they have to get over in the year after critical illness and we don't have clear evidence on what we can do to help these patients. The RECOVER trial was a parallel group RCT conducted in two Scottish hospitals. 240 patients that survived to discharge from ICU after greater than 48 hours of mechanical ventilation received either post-discharge care of one, standard care, they got physiotherapy, dietitian, OT, speech language therapy, or two, intervention, which was standard care plus rehab that, that was supplemented by dedicated rehab assistance aimed at increasing the frequency of mobility and exercise therapies two to threefold, increased dietetic assessment and treatment, and they used individualized goal setting and provided greater illness specific information. It, it looks like the rehab program was delivered in hospital and that the intervention group were then just contacted at least once after hospital discharge. So the cohorts and the treatment delivery, the groups were well matched at baseline, 62 years of age, 55 to 58% male, mainly cardiovascular, respiratory, GIT diagnostic categories, and they were ventilated for eight to nine days. The rehab delivered was similar in ICU. There was a bit more discussion in the intervention group, and there was more rehab activity in the intervention group and after hospital discharge, the difference was that the intervention group received a phone call and a summary to the local doctor. So it looks like what happened was that between ICU and hospital discharge, there was more intervention and rehab that occurred and a bit more communication with the local doctor and the family and the patient after discharge. The outcomes. The primary outcome was the riverbed mobility index at three months and that was 13 for both groups, no difference. The secondary outcomes, three month health related quality of life, six and 12 month riverbed mobility index and health related quality of life, no difference. There was no difference in hospital length of stay, discharge destination, vast symptom score. The intervention group reported greater satisfaction 
with physiotherapy, nutritional support, care coordination and information provision. So, we know that there's a lot going on with our patients who survive critical illness. This rehab in hospital study showed that overall the intervention did not improve recovery. It did improve satisfaction with some aspects of care provision and that might be an important patient-centered outcome. So given that there are problems with recovery, maybe we need to better understand what we are trying to improve and identify interventions that are effective in other settings like geriatrics, other rehab settings, and apply them to our population. Perhaps we need to continue it in the community. Perhaps we need to talk to our patients to understand what matters to them. Well, that's it for this month. Thanks for listening to Critique Journal Club podcast. Come to the website and have a look. Otherwise, we'll see you next month.